Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. Today, I'm on with Richard Wakeman. Richard, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. My name is Richard Wakeman. I am a uh, marketing manager with a specialization in influencer marketing, formerly in the gaming industry, currently looking for my next project. You're in the gaming industry, and I think that's not an industry that I hear about a lot in my day-to-day, It's, but it's, I think, ever-growing. So I'm curious, how did you get into the gaming industry? Well, we have to go back uh, in time a little bit. I started in the influencer marketing business, or rather the influencer talent management business, back in 2018. It was right after I graduated from business school. I wanted to do a career pivot. I ended up working for a company called Fullscreen. They were owned by Warner Media, And at the time, they were like the CAA of YouTubers. So they were the talent agency or talent management entity for people who were trying to make it in social media at that time. And a lot of our roster was gamers. So I got very good at working with gamers. I understood the space. And I play games on my own anyway. You might see a Johnny Silverhand on my shelf in the background. So yeah, I'm a gamer just organically, so it was a very good fit. After full screen, this during the pandemic, things changed a little bit. Warner Media had some issues with their launch of HBO Max. I decided it was time to go, and I ended up just making a full-time pivot into the gaming industry hardcore. So I did influencer marketing for video games, taking what I learned at full screen. And that's pretty much how I got into it. The type of creators I was comfortable working with, the experiences I had, my understanding of the space, it all worked in concert to get me into the industry full-time. That's interesting. And so you're in the influencer marketing world. Can you tell us a little bit more about the product that you are representing or making partnerships on behalf of? Absolutely. In my last role, I was working for a company called Zam. They're an agency owned by Tencent. Tencent is one of the largest gaming companies on the planet. The joke is that they're invested in pretty much everyone. They do have investments, large or small, in ridiculous variety of gaming production houses, gaming studios. So they're very diversified in the space. Notably, they own Riot Games. Go figure. But anyway, I was working for this agency that they own where I specialized in influencer marketing for their mobile game, PUBG Mobile. So PUBG Mobile is the mobile version of the smash hit PC game PUBG, which is an acronym meaning Player Unknowns Battlegrounds. It was big on PC first, then it was published by a Korean game studio, and Tencent licensed the rights to make the mobile version, which took off and has done very well for the past five years. So I was working on influencer marketing as a sort of steady drumbeat to make sure that this game would continue to grow, it would continue to have an audience, and any new update to the game would get the eyeballs that it deserved. So what did you focus on when you were looking for an influencer for PUBG? What what kind of a influencer would fit that business? And how how do we, generally speaking, think about what influencer is best for our business? It all depends on what the game is doing at the time. For instance, when we have just a general game update, oh, there's a new thing in the game. So we'll need someone who's our rank and file influencers, people who play mobile games for a living on Twitch or make YouTube videos around mobile games. That's also a subset of the broader streaming spectrum. A lot of streamers on Twitch, for example, are PC gamers or console gamers. And mobile gamers are a little bit harder to find on that platform, but they thrive on platforms like YouTube. For example, we would be looking for more streamers or people who would make mobile gaming content on YouTube as opposed to Twitch just because 
certain types of games predominant in certain platforms. And with that said, it depends on what we're trying to push in the game. If it's just an update, we just need our partnered influencers, our mobile gamers to play the game, talk about what they like about it, showcase the new features. Great. Sometimes it gets a little more complicated though, because sometimes we'll do branded collabs. So we'll have, I believe there was a Alan Walker collab in the game. Alan Walker's a big DJ. So we literally had a activation where he made a custom video for us, a couple other things. And of course he did appear in the game as a skin. There were some other cosmetics. He contributed music to the game. So sometimes you go beyond your stable of normal influencers that are just uh, playing your game. Sometimes you have to branch out into the music scene. Or we also did a activation with Arcane for League of Legends. So we have to, again, go outside of that comfort zone of mobile gamers to find new audiences or bring in new audiences to see this collab and get the most amount of value out of it. Okay, we can bring in the League of Legends audience. That's a different game, but they might be interested seeing their favorite characters in a different genre. Interesting. When we were chatting last, you mentioned the importance of collaborations between influencers. And can you share a little bit about the value of that and why that might be a valuable step for people interested in breaking into the influencer marketing world? Absolutely. So collaborations are very useful for a number of reasons, chiefly because they give you access, privileged access to an audience you might not have appealed to otherwise. So for example, say you are a beauty influencer and you have a certain audience, certain demographic uh, features, and that's fine for you. But then you get to collaborate with an influencer who is a fitness influencer. So you're talking about aesthetics from a beauty perspective. This fitness influencer talks about it from a health and fitness perspective, working out, how to stay healthy, how to eat right, things like that. But because you have that common thread of trying to enhance your aesthetics, you might find new audience members in this fitness audience that you previously weren't appealing to just because the algorithm uh, sorted you into a different category or they just didn't find you because you were using different keywords. So as long as the collaboration makes sense, you get a benefit of being introduced to people who never would have found you otherwise. And that's one of the most effective ways to grow your audience as an influencer. That makes sense. So it sounds like it's just as much about discovery as it is the quality of the content. Is that, would you agree? And how do you you balance, what do you think the balance is of effort in terms of what a, somebody, somebody who wants to be an influencer should do? What should they be focusing on the most? The phrase is content is king. If the content is quality, it will find an audience. The difference is if your marketing is bad, but your content is good, you'll be like a hidden gem, right? Your content will be good and you'll find someone, but it might not be optimal. The best case scenario is your content is quality and your marketing is on point and your collaboration choices work and you get your message out. So both pieces are important, but content is by far the most important because without content that's quality, you really don't have a product. If you were an influencer trying to get in touch with a company, how would you recommend somebody goes about that? There are a couple of different avenues because I recently represented a company and uh, we were going out to influencers with potential brand deals. A lot of influencers would actually reach out to me on socials. They would reach out on Instagram, they reach out on Discord, they would reach out on LinkedIn in some cases. Although depending on the industry you're in, LinkedIn might not be the best. I know in gaming, Discord is the place to be. 
for sure. Because a lot of these kids, they don't check their email. They, they may or may not check their LinkedIn if they even have one, but they're on Discord 24-7 because that's how they handle voice chats for video games that they play. It's how they stay in contact. There are servers for certain games, for communities. It's, it's very core to that demographic, to gamers. If you're in a different industry, you might be uh, on different platforms. I know subreddits for various influencers or subreddits for various topics can breed their own very tight-knit and very profitable communities. So just find out what platform people are on. But uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Basically, you just need to know where your people are and know what platforms they're using and message accordingly. How many influencers is enough? How would you approach the quantity of influencers that a business should work with? Again, very individualized question. It depends on what your business needs really are. I can speak from experience. When I was working on the PUBG mobile front, we wanted a stable of influencers because we wanted to be able to regularly push out new content to promote the regular updates to the game. So every couple of months, we would have new gameplay, we would have new features, new cosmetics, new skins, and we wanted influencers in place who would promote them with regularity. So we had to maintain those long-term relationships and we needed a group, an entire program included a lot of influencers that would be willing to push those messages out. I actually managed a VIP program of influencers tied to our game. So that was what we uh, leveraged them to do is we would say, okay, we have a new game update. We need you to uh, promote it, make some content around X, Y, and Z. We'll incentivize it. We'll make it fun. We'll gamify it in some cases. Oh, if you get this new in-game medal, I know it's hard to get, it's like an achievement, make some content around it and you get a special prize. So we would make it fun. But the whole idea was to have a large quantity of influencers who were incentivized by our company to regularly make that content to support us. Now, compare that to say a CPG company, which has a holiday sale coming up or a beauty company that wants to launch a new product. In that case, you might be better served by leveraging one large influencer as opposed to a large group of micro to developing talent to get your message out. It all depends on what you're trying to do. And I know for beauty specifically, they've had a lot of success with partnering with one or two very large influencers to move product. So it all depends on what works for your audience and what your needs are. How do you approach the kind of content that should be made for an influencer to be the most successful? Again, very individual question because each individual uh, influencer is different. Ultimately, you need to make something that you're genuinely excited about. I know follow your passion is a tired old cliche, but it actually matters. There is power in knowing what you want to make. If you make something just for the clicks, just for the hype, people will know. People will definitely tell. So it's especially now audiences have been trained. It's very easy to spot inauthentic content. It's very easy to spot when someone is just making things for clickbait to the point where clickbait has become a joke, even among other influencers. Yeah, I'm doing clickbait, sue me. They'll be open about it because that's the only way they can be honest about the content they're making. And uh, audiences know. Audiences definitely can pick up on it. So definitely make something that's true to you. Also, as a related, on a related note, for marketing purposes, if you're trying to grow your audience by doing a collaboration, don't just partner with the biggest guy you can, because oftentimes that's not a good fit. You have to look at overlap in your audience, look at their content. If it jives with your content, 
Some of the best collabs I've seen have come from, are you familiar with maker channels? People like the Hacksmith, they build stuff from Marvel's Avengers. They build sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah, there was a collab between three different channels doing the same thing. They all built a Power Fist gauntlet, I think from Fallout, which is really cool. And they all worked differently and they did a sort of competition to see which one was the most powerful. That's a good collab because it's topical. They're doing the same types of content. They have different charismatic tendencies. They have different personalities. So you get each one of them brings something unique to the table. And there are three different audiences. Maybe there's some overlap, but I feel like they all got a bump from doing that collab because everyone got to see what this other guy was doing. Oh, wow. He's making a different type of maker content, a different type of gun because of that overlap, because of that synergy that collab did well and you compare that to people who just want to partner with Mr. Beast because he's huge. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because his style of content might not mesh with everyone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. This all makes perfect sense. It's interesting how an economy has formed around attention. Don't you think? Oh my goodness. Now we're getting to the meat of the matter. The fact that attention and influence has been commoditized is between you and me, I find it a little terrifying. Yes, it's useful for marketing. Yes, it's great that you can have all these different audiences with attendant audience data on tap to sell your product or your service. But at the same time, what is that doing for us as a society, right? Speaking from experience, I feel that we as humanity in general, has become a bit more narcissistic as a result of social media and its proliferation. Now, theoretically, anyone can be a star. Anyone can be the center of their own little universe. And we were already into ourselves before, but now it's become even easier to do that. It's become even easier to be narcissistic. And they're getting us at earlier ages. I mean, you know, Every kid is on TikTok now. It's what is that doing long-term? If kids don't minds are developing around social media, what does that mean for society when those kids grow up? It's interesting. It's exciting. And it's also a little scary. And uh, I really hope that we can figure out a way to balance out the narcissistic tendencies while at the same time maintaining the benefits of social media, such as better communication, easier learning. It's a lot easier to get information because of these platforms. Let's not forget the benefits. We just have to have some safeguards so we don't so we don't go too crazy. Yeah, it's quite interesting. How do you approach valuing influence? Is it something where it's a negotiation or is there like calculations that you can do for industry averages? I was raised on the YouTube platform in this industry because that's what Fullscreen specialized in. At full screen, we would actually assign financial valuations. We did use financial models. And that was a calculation based on a couple of factors, trajectory, what we thought they were going to do in the next year, et cetera, et cetera. But in addition to that, it was also based on the CPM value that YouTube's platform assigned. So if anyone who has a YouTube channel, once you start monetizing, uh, you get a CPM and that's like how much your content is worth per impression right? Or per thousand impressions, depending on what metric you're looking at. Uh, but the bottom line is that is a dollar amount. That is how valuable your content is according to the YouTube algorithm. Um, and that's what we based ultimately our calculations on. So in that sense, figuring out what advertisers are willing to pay for different types of content 
is very valuable from a business standpoint because you can actually get to a dollar value for something uh, as abstract as is this good content or not. Interesting facts. I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was still uh, working on these financial models, I noticed that family friendly content on YouTube uh, consistently had a higher CPM than other types of content. For example, it's very easy as a gamer creator to be toxic on camera, to make sex jokes and have breasts in your thumbnail to get clickbait. And you can get trash in that way. You can get views. But those views are less valuable because it's crappy content. By the same token, family-friendly gamers, people who kept things clean on their streams. For example, Ninja, he was very clean on his streams because he knew a lot of his audience was children. His CPM is higher. Fancy that. The algorithm, funny enough, has done a pretty good job, at least as far as I can observe, in valuing content that is higher quality, harder to make, and cleaner, more, more friendly, in an accurate manner. So that might be a good starting point, just looking at what advertisers are willing to pay based on how CPM values are assigned on monetizing platforms. That's interesting. I can see how if you have more family-friendly content, it was at a higher price. So who's doing the valuation of the CPM? Who's deciding what the CPM is? Is it the platforms themselves? The platforms are responding to demand for certain demographics and certain types of content. So if you try to buy ads on YouTube, you can specify certain things. Facebook does something similar. Facebook has very good targeting tools. So you can identify age groups, for example, you can identify broad themes, right? There's a gaming category. So in that sense, you're getting more or less real time data on what advertisers are looking for at any given point in time. And the platform reacts to that demand and adjusts the CPM. That's also why, interestingly, CPMs usually jump up towards the, the beginning of the holiday shopping season. And then come January, if you're in the talent management business, like I was back in the day, you would get calls or emails. Oh my God, am I not relevant anymore? My CPM dropped by X number of dollars or cents. No, that's just because the holiday shopping season is over and then CPM is going down because post-holiday shopping season, advertisers aren't buying as much ads. It happens every year. We joke about it in the industry, but that's just how CPMs can fluctuate based on demand. And it happens again in real time. That's really interesting. It's like a seasonality to consumption and therefore a seasonality to marketing costs. Seasonality is very important for tracking CPM. And also our financial models took into account seasonal fluctuations of CPM. Go figure. Is the influencer market quite saturated? Oh, yes. <laughs> At this point, it has exploded. I think the pandemic probably drove some of that. If you want to talk about ancient history for just a minute, when I first graduated from business school and got into influencer marketing, that was at the time when brands were still not quite taking it seriously. It was an experiment as far as marketing went. It's like, hey, we have 30K in the marketing budget left. Let's put it into influencer and see what we get. They were treating it as an experiment. It wasn't being taken all that seriously. But we were starting to see more results and some brands were getting into it. This was 2018, 2019, 2020. The pandemic happened and all of a sudden influencer marketing became very important. The reason why is because in the absence of things like live sports, people weren't going out. Where are you going to advertise yourself? Influencers rapidly became one of the most important games in town from a marketing standpoint. So that definitely drove an uptick in the number of people who were buying influencer content and also the number of influencers who were trying to cash in. 
So at this point, yes, the market is very saturated, but as TikTok has shown us, it's still very possible to go viral. It is still very possible to be a new creator who can break out and go up. I want to believe, because I, I don't want to be depressed, right? But I want to believe that there is growth in the pie, as opposed to just being a zero-sum game. It is possible to grow the wealth. It is possible to carve out a new niche. It is possible to blow up even in a crowded space. That makes you gotta sense. Keep your eyes on the prize and be that. Bring out, believe that optimism. It's you gotta believe in your ability as an influencer. You have to really think that you have something special that deserves to be seen. Yeah. So you do believe that the influencer marketing world will expand over time and that it's useful increase. Yes, I do. There is also something else to consider as more platforms emerge. TikTok, no one heard of TikTok a few years ago and then all of a sudden it's taking over. In fact, I think it is one of the only major social platforms now that is still expanding appreciably. Other platforms are still doing well, but they're stagnant. Facebook is, is more or less flat at this point. Instagram is still doing well. It's still like the default platform, but TikTok is growing quickly. And I feel like as we continue to evolve our technology, more platforms will arise. The metaverse, maybe technology isn't quite there. VR tech isn't quite there or quite accessible enough to drive major widespread adoption now. But when it becomes cheap enough, when you can have a pair of sunglasses that also functions as VR gear, and uh, it's about the same cost as a smartphone, then all of a sudden I feel like we'll see metaverse-based platforms. And those platforms will need their own population of influencers. So yes, I do believe in future expansion. Do you think that AI will allow influencers to create more content than right now? So not only will there be more influencers, there will also be more content? There will always be more content, no question. And AI is going to make it easier than ever to create content. And that could be both good and bad. We've talked about the negative parts, which is, yes, AI could conceivably steal people's likenesses, steal people's art, recombine it into new forms with no attribution. But again, the SAG-AFTRA strike and their current agreements are actually taking care of that. And we'll see what happens in on the political front, too, because if we can effectively regulate AI, then we can harness that technology as a net benefit without any of the unfortunate stuff that comes with it. Also, let's talk about the uh, benefits of AI for a sec for content creators. Right now, if you're, say, a student filmmaker, I have a friend who, who is a filmmaker, he's an independent, and it's very hard to pay for this stuff. Animation, so expensive. Special effects, so expensive. If you're a student filmmaker, you'll have to write your film to be within budget. You'll have to change things around. Oh man, we can only afford the paper mache set. We got to tone down the scene to stay within the thousand dollars that we have for special effects, right? AI would empower independent creators to deliver a much higher production value. And that's very exciting. Imagine a student filmmaker who suddenly has access to Pixar quality animation. That would be cool. Now, technology isn't quite there yet, but I could easily see it getting there. And at that point, the independent creators will be empowered to make stuff that rivals the AAA studios and the large production firms today. So yes, we'll see a lot more content. I think it'll be easier to make quality content, provided we can rein in the more negative urges of AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering what kind of restrictions do you think there will be on AI relative to creating content? 
Definitely, if you look at what happened with the SAG-AFTRA agreement, you can't use someone's likeness without permission. That is unacceptable. It makes a lot of sense. Like, why pay Bruce Willis millions if you can just get a Walmart version with the $100 software you ordered last year? And that would be very dangerous. We want to have human actors in our content. So in that sense, I feel like there will definitely be some level of restriction on using someone's face. Also, you may have seen on X, there was a flood of Taylor Swift deepfakes, which is very unfortunate. And again, that issue has prompted the United States government to deliberate on a bill banning non-consensual nudity, non-consensual use of someone's face, even for not a profit motive, but just, is it libel? Is it slander? I suppose maybe it could be considered print, so that would be libel. But the bottom line is that we do need these restrictions in place. And I feel like some of these restrictions are already being discussed because humans are smart. We're intelligent animals and we can see when certain uses of our new technology are suboptimal and uh, we're, we're handling it. It took a while and there might be some more hiccups before this is all over, but we are dealing with it. We are getting out ahead of this issue. So as long as we square away our restrictions on AI, don't use someone's face without permission and also graphic design. AI is taking pieces of other people's artwork and reassembling it into new forms. If we could either restrict how AIs are trained or develop some kind of automatic attribution system where anytime an AI uses someone's art, you get a payout. You get half a cent every time one pixel of your art is used or something like that. In the same way that YouTube will sometimes automatically split payments if you use someone else's song, right? If you could just have an automated system that does that, then everyone gets their due, their fair share, and we still have no restriction on the creative process with the use of AI. So that's just one idea I had. But the bottom line is that if we can somehow restrict this so that artists are not being taken for granted and taken advantage of, then AI can very easily be a net benefit for human society and the creative industries. That makes sense. Going back to influencer marketing, what are some of the KPIs or data points that you would look at in the influencer management role? Depends on the platform. For YouTube, I would look at things like views per month, and I would also want to look at watch time. Those are two very important metrics for a video-based platform, just to see who is coming back to the channel regularly and how what their trajectory is. If you're getting more views per month over month, that means you're growing, and that's a very important metric. Also, watch time. Watch time is used as a barometer for content quality. The idea, of course, being that if content sucks, you're not going to watch it for very long. You're going to turn it off. So if you watch a video the whole way through, that generally tells me, as an influencer marketing manager, that your content is engaging enough that people want to keep watching it. So that's higher quality content, as opposed to somebody clicking on it because, oh, there are boobs in the thumbnail, and then they leave immediately because you misrepresented what the content actually was for clickbait. And that's another reason why watch time has become a very important metric is because it helps weed out people trying to gain the system. Now for streaming platforms, that's a little bit different because streaming is a different medium than just a video. For streaming content like Twitch streamers, I would look at maximum concurrence. Concurrence are how many viewers are watching your stream at the same time. That's on streaming platforms, that's actually a better metric of how engaging your streams are. Because on a stream, it lasts a lot longer than a 10 minute video. People have to go to the bathroom. People have to go to work. 
people have to do a million other things, get a snack. So you're going to have people coming and going the entire time. You're streaming for a couple of hours. Some people stream all day, six hours, eight hours. So how do you measure the engaging, the relative engagement of that stream? You look at how many people were watching at any given time. And I'd like to look at average concurrence, average over the entire stream, and maximum concurrence to see the maximum number of people who are watching all at once. Because that gives me a better idea of how engaging a streamer is on streaming platforms, different from YouTube. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, you have to think about what is the flow of the value that's coming from the influencer and how you can measure to ensure that's certainly happening. Yeah, it's, it's important to adapt your approach uh, based on the platform you're on. Also, there are some metrics that platforms provide that are frankly useless. So subscribers on YouTube are like a, they're a decent metric. But in terms of identifying who's falling off or who is still growing, they're actually not that useful because in general, nobody ever bothers to click the unsubscribe button. They'll just stop watching. So there are people, there are channels out there with like many subscribers and uh, they have very low views per month because they've fallen off. But the subscriber count doesn't reflect how engaged the current audience actually is. So that's something else to keep in mind. Audience behavior is something that needs to be looked at when you're trying to pick KPIs. And when you're determining the, like what an audience is, how do you group that audience typically? Are you looking at demographics or are you looking at interests? How, how do you, or, or is it, does it depend on what the product is? Definitely you, you got it. Depends on what the product is. I feel like I've been saying that a lot. It's all case by case. Mm -hmm. I, I would be really nice to have a nice clean through line, but that's, that's just not how it works. Yes, case by case. In the gaming industry, perfect example, we would group the audience by game. If you go on Twitch, you can literally see who's playing which game. You look at the top games being played, how many people are streaming that game. It's very cool how their platform can detect what game you're playing and label your stream and label your content accordingly. But that's a perfect example. It works for the gaming industry because each game has a different audience. For example, you're playing a horror game, that's the horror audience. And then you have the first person shooter guys who like playing Call of Duty and are probably military fans. And then you have people who play Fortnite, which I'm almost positive are kids. Hmm. So it, it all depends, right? Just knowing what your audience is and knowing what games they play is very useful in the gaming industry for demographic purposes. And it's very easy to sort people out by the games and communities they're participating in. In other industries, it may be a little bit more difficult. A buddy of mine works for a toy company. And so of course they have to worry about, let's see, we've got the kids, we have the parents who are also marketing too, because they make purchasing decisions. And then we also have the collector market, grownups who grew up with these toys and collect them now, things like Hot Wheels, right? Or Beanie Babies or what have you. And these are all different demographics, but they all form part of your overall revenue makeup. So again, highly individualized. Best thing, I, best advice I can give any business who wants to better understand their audience, do the research, do experiments. Marketing A-B tests are classic, but they also give you clues. If you do work with influencers and you have influencer campaigns that have done gangbusters for you, those are content, those are data gold mines because influencers have very good audience data. If they're willing to give you access to that data, then you can learn a lot about who you're appealing to. Just a thought. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. How do you think that the data about audiences will evolve in the future? 
we might get a little dystopian here because we're talking about data collection uh, of private citizens. Right now, we already have a lot of data. If you've ever been on your phone and you had a conversation and you mentioned a certain product and then you're on Instagram and then that exact product pops up. Yes. That's not a fluke. They're really listening. Or rather, an algorithm is listening for keywords and serving up ads that they think you might like. I feel like there might be more of that in the future. And as we continue to give away more information about ourselves, as more and more of our lives move online, it'll be easier to target demographics. We'll have more information. One thing, I don't know if this is going to be the thing, uh, but I know uh, a few years ago, there was a lot of interest in eye tracking software where we could actually see where people's eyes were going on a page. Uh, and this is, uh, this is an old school marketing thing. People have been worrying about the, the Z pattern of how people in the West scan pages as far back as when catalogs were a thing, magazine ads, they would design this to follow the Z pattern of how people scan pages so uh, they can make more attractive, more engaging advertisements. Eye tracking could potentially be the high tech version of that, where you see where people are looking on a screen or how to grab people's attention. But yeah, I feel like there's going to be more data. But as a rejoinder to that, every business should be paying close attention to how privacy laws are changing, how privacy laws adapt to new technology, because that's going to limit what you can and can't do and the data you can and can't collect, because that's just how it goes. And actually you can get in trouble. TikTok, for example, was using data they shouldn't have had access to for a while. Someone on Reddit actually looked at the source code and found something interesting and they got in trouble with the government because uh, of potential privacy law violations. Don't be those guys. Get out ahead of it. Pay close attention to how privacy laws affect your business. Use the data you have access to legally. Don't play games. It's interesting to think about what what's coming next. Do you think Neuralink is going to have marketing implications? Are you trying to give me neck terrors? <laughs> oh, guaranteed it will have marketing applications. Whether the governments of the world will allow them is a different matter entirely. Mm. But yes, in terms of what Neuralink could eventually be capable of, downloading images from your brain, allowing you to control devices with the power of thought. If a business could read the thoughts of their customers and there was no pesky law getting in the way, wouldn't they do it? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. It's quite possible that there may be some marketing implications, maybe there might even be some non-nefarious data you can get from someone's Neuralink activity that is not dangerous, that does not violate privacy laws or any moral tenets. There might even be a way to do it properly and cleanly. But yes, for sure, there will be some kind of marketing application. I'm excited to see what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the future will have more marketing or more advertisements or fewer advertisements? Hmm. I feel like there may be more in the sense that there will be more places to place advertisements. Uh, remember uh, what we talked about earlier, where more platforms, more social platforms come into existence. More platforms means more potential ad inventory. And we'll probably have more places to put advertisements. By the same token, again, because we were talking about how AI was starting to become regulated by government, eventually we may have more limitations being placed on advertisement placements as well. So we'll have to see what happens. Right now we're in a very weird space where technology is getting out ahead of policy, but now policy is getting smarter and catching up. 
So we'll see who wins this race. Maybe we'll just have the same amount of advertisements we had just spread across more platforms. But from a purely numbers perspective, I think the number of advertisements will increase just because there will be more platforms and more space to put put ads out there. Yeah, that's a good point. You're probably right. I like to hope that there will be fewer ads because as data improves, we'll have fewer mistakes in ads. So if they're all better fitting, it's possible that they'll just inflate to stay at the same frequency or even increase. But I, I like to imagine that they'll decrease and and that marketing will be a little bit more intentional or ads will be a little bit more intentional. So that's what I'm hoping for. Dude, I'm right there with you. It would be nice to have better ads. Imagine if every ad was at the quality of the stuff in the Super Bowl. Like where ads were, there's always been a lot of discussion about ads being the content, right? Ads being something you want to watch. That's one of the values of influencer marketing is that you already want to watch this person. So why not watch them play with something that they're also using regularly and that they're being paid to feature? It's fun either way. So why not turn it into a business benefit as well? But yeah, it would be nice. Uh, If your future comes to pass, then maybe we'll have marketing budgets be a little bit easier to manage because you can spend less money and get the same results with more targeted advertising. Who knows? Yeah, that's definitely the direction that marketers are optimizing towards. So I hope it happens. Final question. Are there any, do you have any particular influencers that you find are really good at what they do? And why do you, why? Oh my God. So many, actually. There's a lot of talent out there. My favorite influencer is a guy named Colin Furs. Colin Furs is a British man, and he is one of the premier maker channels on YouTube. He specializes in building wacky machines to solve non-existent problems or just put himself in danger. For example, he made a jet turbine-powered barbecue, which nearly burned his eyebrows off, which is exciting. A jet-powered scooter, which is totally safe, (laughs) but he also made a hover cycle, a hover bike, but he didn't do it in a way that was normal. He did it in a way where he put two giant fan blades on the bottom of the frame and he didn't even have any steering. He had to trick it into going where he wanted to go by steering with his body weight. And uh, yeah, he had these giant spinning blades of death, maybe a few inches away from his legs. It was, it was a safe bike. It was really fun. But the point is that he's willing to put himself in danger. But more than that, he's very good at making not just where he plays with his creations fun, but he also makes the build process fun. He films himself shaping every little piece of metal, doing welds, the design process. He does the whole thing. And he shows multiple videos of the process of how he puts this thing together and caps them off with a video where he actually puts the creation through its paces and and shows off how it works. I think he does a good job because he takes these projects and he turns them into a lot of content, which is good from a financial standpoint because that's more content to earn CPM payments off of on YouTube, for example. But at the same time, he also makes every single piece enjoyable. That is hard. So he's at the holy grail intersection of good marketing, good content strategy, and also straight up quality content. He has everything. A lot of YouTubers don't do as well on one case or the other. Their marketing is bad, their content is good, or vice versa. This guy hits everything. That makes sense. A lot of balance in the content, Mm -hmm. a lot of depth, and a density of value in the content. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. Yeah, that's how we got me, man. (laughs) I love it.
yeah. The, the, yeah. Um, final question. Any books or any knowledge sources you recommend, especially related to the, the, this industry, but I guess more broadly in, in marketing? Interesting. There are some books out there, but I feel like more than anything else, this is just a psychology thing. Here's one that I'm working through right now, as a matter of fact, influenced by Robert B. Cialdini. Here we go. <laughs> this is less about influencer marketing and more about just how do you get influence? To your point about influence being monetized now, this is basically the psychological underpinning of why certain influencers are successful. Definitely something to think about just in terms of understanding how humans work and how that applies. <laughs> in terms of, yeah, just like that, the basics, because we're still human minds. We're human brains and we operate according to certain well-established psychological principles. And that book does a good job of breaking them down. But as for influencer marketing, I like reading marketing journals. Every so often articles come out that are very useful, just like the Notes versions. But honestly, I think I put more store by just my own research and my own experiences as a consumer of influencer content. So if you are interested in influencer marketing, find your influencers, look at what they do, look at what works and look at what doesn't. Because remember, influencers are doing everything they can to make sure you know what activities they're partaking in, what content they're making. They are trying to get you to notice them. So you as an observer can figure out what works and what doesn't just by being in the mix, being in the scene, consuming the content and paying attention. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Thank you, Richard. I really appreciate you joining today and, and sharing your wisdom. This is such a new and exciting area in the marketing ecosystem. And so I really appreciate you walking us through it. Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me on your show, Alex. Absolutely. All right. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.